academic brilliance or great theological understandings or insights. We are asking you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher this evening. Lead us into truth, we pray, and apply it into our lives so that we might be able to live for you and live for your glory in the places that you call us to be this week. So please, Lord, teach us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. You might want to keep your Bibles open at Jonah chapter 3 and um, as we continue looking at the life of Jonah. Everyone loves the story of Jonah, our runaway prophet. Well, at least I do. I love the story of Jonah and I've really enjoyed um, preparing this and I hope, well, I don't hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you're finding it really helpful in terms of your Christian life. That's, that's the point really. But it is an amazing, amazing story. Um, we're at the point where Jonah has just been vomited up on the beach just outside Nineveh. We can only imagine what he might have looked like. But we know from last week, Jonah's prayer from the inside of the great fish was a prayer of thanksgiving. God had saved him. Do you remember how we talked about prayer being an expression of helplessness? And he'd called out to God, and this time God sent a great fish. Shall I turn this off and use this? Is that better? So, in his utter helplessness, he called out to God from the belly of the fish, and God rescued him. And Jonah is able to say in the belly of the fish, salvation comes from the Lord. He's finally ready to share that message with others. So, what's going to happen next for our rebellious prophet? But if we think that this book is just about a prophet and a great fish, then we miss out on the book's main, main message. Because essentially, it's a, it's a book about what God is like. And I'd like to point out three things this evening. That God, well, he's a God of second chances. He's a God who speaks simply and directly to us. And he's a God who looks for the fruit of repentance. So let's begin by thinking he's a God of second chances. And I make no apology of bringing this same issue up. We talked about it in our first week when we looked at Jonah, but it's such an amazing thing that God is a God of second chances that I want us to think about it again. Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. These are wonderful words. We know what happened the first time when God spoke to Jonah in chapter 1. Jonah heard the words, Go! but instead he ran in the opposite direction. And our reluctant prophet heard God's call, cool, but he did a runner. And Jonah's attempt to run away from God took him as low as he could go, to the bottom of the ocean. But God hadn't given up on Jonah and arranges his great fish to swallow him and then to vomit him up onto the beach. And so we meet our bedraggled prophet, washed up somewhere, smelling a bit fishy, but he seems ready now to listen to the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I heard this story recently, a story of a man who worked as a driver for a coach company in England. This was back in the 1960s. He was about to be made redundant from the company and um, was going to uh, move uh, to Australia but was given one last job to do. He was asked to drive a coachload of people to a football stadium every night for a week. It was back in the 1960s and it was a Billy Graham 
uh, meetings, a famous American evangelist. And each time he pulled his coach up outside the stadium, he was asked by one of the enthusiastic Christians on the coach if he'd like to come inside. He declined each time. At the end of the week, his job came to an end and he emigrated to Australia. Quite quickly, he got a job as a coach driver in Australia. And his first job was to take a group of people to a football stadium to hear Billy Graham. He was invited in again, and this time he went in and he became a Christian. He got a second chance. We don't always get a second chance in life, do we? You turn down a promotion, it may never come again. You turn down a relationship, you may not see that person again. Generally in life, we don't get second chances. But thank God it's not like that in the kingdom of God. Look at Peter. He was on a different beach. He denied Jesus three times, but then Jesus gave him a second chance. Jesus reinstates him as he asks him three times, do you love me? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I love these words. They're words of grace. How many times did you hear the gospel before you responded to it? We've all got stories, haven't we? of being dealt with by the God of the second chance. And I wonder, in between chapters 2 and chapters 3, Jonah must have lived with that question, will God ever use me again? God wasn't obliged to do so. But with God, there's always a second chance. Whatever we have done, however far we have run, God is there waiting. And so we see that God speaks to Jonah and we see that he's a God who speaks simply and directly in verses 2 to 5. First of all, God speaks clearly to Jonah. When God came to Jonah a second time, he spoke the same words that he gave him the first time. If you look in verse 2 of, of chapter 1, he, he said to Jonah, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Perhaps Jonah thought that after his Mediterranean cruise that God may have changed his mind and come up with something new. If God had had a little time just to think about things, he may change his mind. But no, it's the same message. It's very easy for us as we get involved in many good things in church that we neglect what we're called to do. But the message stays the same. So if we're running food banks, if we're running mums and toddlers group, if we're running whatever we're running in the community, in our churches, we must remember the call to share the good news. In Mark's gospel, we read the words of Jesus. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. God's orders to the church remain the same. We're to preach the gospel and to find a way to do that which answers the questions of our time. Jonathan Edwards said, the task of every generation is to discover in which direction the sovereign redeemer is moving, then move in that direction. So the message doesn't change, but the way we share that message, the way we present it, will change according to the context. But Jonah here is being asked to go again with the same message. And so we read the words which we've been waiting to hear in verse 3, where it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh at last. 
And so Jonah makes his way to Nineveh. This was a preacher's graveyard. Jonah was to go to the biggest military bully in the region, a huge near neighbor with enough firepower to wipe out Israel. We read in verse 3, Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. The description of three days is probably to give us an indication of how large the city was. But notice in verse 3, we read how eager Jonah is to carry out what God has called him to do. It says, Jonah began by doing a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It was a message that showed that God intended to act at the end of a specified time, but also one that implied that judgment may be delayed or, delayed or avoided. But Jonah didn't procrastinate this time. There was an urgency as he preached this message. It was an uncompromising message of repentance. The people had 40 days to repent, and at the end of the time, God was going to overturn the city. I think Jonah knew that his mission wasn't really about ushering in God's vengeance on the city, but enabling them to receive God's grace. One writer called uh, Krish Kandaya writes about this, and he suggests that there are two equal and opposite dangers that we face when bringing bad news to those who don't know God. Some Christians seem to take a sadistic delight, he writes, in explaining just how angry God is with people's sin, leaving, leaving people often feeling condemned and unable to see that there's a way out provided by Jesus. And equally, at the other end, there are those who repackage Christianity so that it has no bad news at all. The gospel can just be a feel-good religion, which helps us, make, helps us feel better about ourselves. But just as we can't withhold God's grace from people, nor can we offer it to people who think they deserve it in their own right, we learn from Jonah the bad news that God asks us to, to deliver is neither to be ignored nor over-egged. The bad news that Jonah's got to deliver is for this nation and every other nation. And Jonah's sharp and succinct challenge met people who've been prepared by God to receive this message. And so we read in verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. It doesn't say that they believed Jonah. It seems to have, he seems to have disappeared into the background. The hearers are only aware of God. And I guess we know we've done our job well when people say, you pointed me to Jesus. You pointed me to the cross. God speaks directly and simply to us and to our world. Next, we see a God who looks for the fruit of repentance in verses 6 to 10. Now, for the, those of you that have been pondering on these verses, there's a couple of potential problems in these verses. Does God want to see our acts of repentance before he forgives us? And can God change his mind? After all, God said he was going to overturn Nineveh, but now it looks like he's changed his mind. And, and does God reward us for what we do? Does God change his mind? To answer the first question, we need to see how the Ninevites respond to Jonah's preaching. Look in verse 5. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. 
We even got a, we've even got a copy of the decree sent by the king in verse 7. It says, this is the proclamation he issued, he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So it's interesting, the idea to fast actually came from ordinary people, first of all, the Ninevites. But it wasn't just the king who noticed what they were saying. God heard it too. Look in verse 10. It says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But this does give us a bit of a potential problem, because is it saying that God rewards us for what we do? Was, was God's change of heart based on what the Ninevites did? I suppose to answer this, we need to look into the New Testament, and Paul writes to the church in Ephesus about this, and he couldn't have said it any more clearly than this. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. The, the New Testament teaches us that it is preaching or proclamation or sharing the good news, the gospel with people that produces faith. Romans 10 says the same thing. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good, good news. And we can see from these verses that the order is sharing the gospel, preaching, and then faith, and then repentance. God uses preaching to produce faith, which leads to repentance. And when I say preaching, I'm talking about all the times that we try and share the good news with people. It's not just about what people do at the front here. It's about our everyday encounters as we share Jesus with people. And we see this as a pattern in the book of Jonah. Jonah preached 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Then we read that the people believed God. And then in the next verse, they proclaimed a fast. They repented. So it isn't their fasting, praying, and humbling of themselves that's saving them. These acts didn't save them, but they were not unimportant in God's eyes. God's noticing of them is another way of, of saying that God was pleased with what they had done. It didn't save them, but it demonstrated the work of grace that had been completed in them. And I want us for a few moments to look briefly at them to see what we can learn about these fruits of repentance. The first thing they did was fast. Look in verse 5. They declared a fast. Fasting is something we don't hear spoken about very much, but actually it's very biblical. Fasting was a practice of Jesus and of Paul and of the other apostles. In Acts chapter 13, it says, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So we can see that one of the purposes of fasting is when we've got an important decision to make, or we have a burden for a group of people or a nation to hear the gospel. And Jesus had a lot to say about fasting. 
Much of it actually was about not, how not to fast. But he did say uh, about his disciples that the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. So the expectation is that Christians will fast. And fasting puts us in a place where we recognize our utter need and our utter dependence on God. It's something which God sees and affirms is good. Secondly, we see that God affirms the people humbling themselves before God. Look in verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. The king took off his royal robes and put on sackcloth and sat in the dust. Can you imagine one of our political leaders doing that? Humbling ourselves before God is a recognition that there's nothing that we can do of ourselves, that our situation is hopeless without God. It's recognizing, apart from me, as Jesus said, you can do nothing. The third fruit of repentance was prayer. Listen to the king's instructions to his people. But let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. He says, let everyone call on God. Let everyone urgently call on God. This isn't a kind of a gentle prayer, which is typical of my prayer life and perhaps yours. This is desperate prayer. This is intercession. I once had the opportunity to pray with an Indian couple who were visiting the UK. They'd come along to a prayer meeting that I attended in Bolton where we were praying for the Muslim community. I was surprised when these two elderly Indian Christians got on their knees as soon as the prayer meeting started. They were praying for people in situations that they didn't know about, but they had so much passion. As they prayed for the Muslims in those streets, they'd never met. They wept. I felt like a grasshopper among giants of prayer. How much, kind of, how much of this kind of praying do we really know? Urgent intercession. God saw it among a pagan people who'd only just turned to him. Finally, the last fruit of repentance we see is people turning from their evil ways. Look in verse 8. It says, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. It's interesting that Jonah's message isn't a very long one. We don't know if, if this was the whole of his sermon or whether it was just a, a summary of his sermon. Was it really just eight words? It would be nice, wouldn't it, to have an eight-word sermon? <laughs> be a very short service. But these words must have cut to their hearts. God had prepared them to hear this message from Jonah. I wonder if the violence had got so bad that people knew they were in a bad place. But notice the thrust of the king's words is on personal responsibility. It's, it's, it is the individuals that have to give up their evil ways. There's, there's an absence of blaming the state or society or your parents or anything else. It's personal sin that they're repenting from. And it's so easy for us to recognize where other people need, where other people have gone wrong, where they need to repent. But God's call is for us to take responsibility for our evil ways, for our violence. We are called to turn away from it. So the people fasted 
They prayed with urgency. They humbled themselves and turned from their evil way. Would God now relent and not destroy the city? But wait a moment. Can God really change his mind? How can God relent from a threat which he'd given to the Ninevites? 1 Samuel 15 said, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. So how can we explain then that God appears to have changed his mind? There's a helpful passage in Jeremiah chapter 18 that says this, it's God speaking. If, any, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and, dis- and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will, will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. So these verses show us that God is free to change his mind, to act in mercy to those who repent. It's a bit like getting a final notice from a utility firm who intends to cut off your electricity and gas unless you pay. They have every intention of doing that, but they offer you a few days' grace in which to pay. God always acts in relationship with his people. He uses our language to help us understand what he's saying. So finally, what do we learn from Jonah chapter 3? Well, everything in this story is about grace. It's a story that teaches us what God is like. He's a God of the second chance. He calls us to serve him in difficult places. We can't manipulate God. We can't follow formulas that will guarantee he will act in a certain way. But we can expect that God will still speak to us, his people, that he calls us to engage in those spiritual disciplines of repentance and fasting and prayer as we intercede for for, for people in this parish and around the world, for our work colleagues, for our neighbours. And now as we turn our thoughts to remember his death and resurrection, we recall once more that he is a God of mercy and grace. Mm -hmm.